between food and sex, those are two hardwired, you know, drives for the, you know, for survival of the species. Right. right. Um, and they, they hit the same receptor sites in the brain. They're reinforced by dopamine. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So, so dopamine. There's behind addict, the, the, the physiology of addiction is fascinating. Uh -huh. I mean, that's what's really cool when you take somebody that's an addict coming in and they feel so much shame. Yeah. And you can give a, you can sit there and give them some, you know, kind of the several explanations of it. Because you can see addiction mm -hmm. from multiple standpoints. You know, mm. we, look, we look at the brain structure, we look at the family background, we look at the trauma piece. And mm -hmm. you put all these things together and you've got this perfect storm scenario. And these people kind of, and the thing about the brain structure too is when the, if the brain is going into fight or flight, it goes into, you know, um, overdrive and fight or flight when the when the reptilian part of the brain kicks mm -hmm. in into some sort of survival mechanism, mm -hmm. the cortex goes offline. Mm. So we lose access to the cortex, you know, wow. which is our rational thinking the ability. Lobe. Yeah, the ability to sell you know, just to self-control you know, self-control to think through consequences to analyze all this kind of stuff and when that's offline and you got somebody that's sort of just in their reptilian brain in survival mode they're going to do all kinds of stuff and then when they come to then they're shamed and oh my gosh how did why did i do that i can't yes. believe i did that again yes well that's why because you weren't really functioning your, on your all brain, cylinders you were there but your brain was hijacked by another part of your brain wow right? that's so, so good it's a hijacked brain you know, and then when you put that, when you got that brain structure, that's a part of that. It, it is hijacked. There, it's not that you don't have responsibility, but you're not the part of your brain that has all of the abilities for self-control mm -hmm. and, and all of that are are either completely offline mm -hmm. or or are not functioning at their, you know, at it's kind of like being drugged. Private. Yeah, it's probably why it people is. rape, date rape people. Mm -hmm. You know, they they're, um, you know, two one or two funny. Um, movies and maybe we can talk about this because I don't know if any of these would be relevant to bring up and you can bring them up or I can if you do but do you remember the Seinfeld episode where they were competing to see who could go the longest without masturbating <laughs> yeah. that was so funny to me that was really funny and it to me it speaks a little bit to the fact that you know it does calm people down and help them sleep I mean there's definitely it's the, it's the um most primal self-soothing that, that we have there are pictures we have pictures of uh, of um what's the ultrasound pictures of of fetuses in the womb you know holding an erect penis wow yeah, so it's not it's not i mean it's so biologically ingrained mm -hmm. as a self-soothing mm -hmm. yeah and I, that that's so good see you have all these facts behind a lot of what i hear and even you know just young girls or boys that sure. discover masturbation at two or three or four years old. And, and I think there's nothing, I mean, again, in my, yeah, I'm coming from my own personal philosophy. Right? Yeah. And you're going to have other people have some, but it's, it's a non-moral thing, right? Yeah. It's just, it's yeah. just masturbation. Like it feels good to rub right. your back. It feels good to touch right. that area. Yeah, of course. And then, but if you add, when you add shame onto it, mm -hmm. now shame is going to drive all kinds of stuff. Yeah. When you, when you get shamed for it, you're going to drive disconnection, mm. right? So you get somebody who's shamed for this early on, and they believe they begin to believe negative things about themselves. Shame takes us into hiding, 
right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what I do with shame is I disconnect. I feel different. People, I'm different from everybody else. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, I'm disconnected from connections and relationships. Even if I may be connected, I'm going to be hiding lots of myself. You assume right? you're different when you're mm-hmm. probably not. Which the opposite of addiction is intimacy. Yeah. And if I've and if I've got the shame in my background, mm-hmm. even from something small like that, and I'm I'm holding mm-hmm. back and disconnected, mm-hmm. I'm more prone then to go into some kind of addiction to to deal with right. stuff than I am to connect and make an intimate. Yeah. You want to numb yourself to mm-hmm. to you know hide the pain instead of work through it and and you don't want anybody to eat. i mean for somebody that's really stupid shame, the, the, the worst thing imaginable would somebody be finding out right yeah which is if you're in a safe place and somebody actually can find you out want to be and, known, and, and be known yeah. is, is the antidote yeah. but but people are gonna people yeah want to do everything they can to avoid being found out yeah they think no one would understand and yeah that's the thing that kills me about all the secrecy that so many people are imprisoned by because they think oh this is bad this is weird no one else does this mm-hmm. and when they start talking they find that they're not alone and that this is common um and um it's such a relief for the soul <laughs> yeah you know okay so if you got if you've got communities that are open and you've got households that are open where we yeah. can talk about things, yeah. we can, anything, there's nothing off limits, mm-hmm. then that's one of the reasons why those kind of families, you're going to have more secure connections. Mm-hmm. You don't have the shame that's pervading the household mm-hmm. because you can talk about anything. You're much less likely to have any kind of addiction developing because there's connection. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. in the households where there's disconnection and all this other stuff that, that you're going to get the addiction happening. Yeah, they need to soothe that ache. But if there's there there's not a huge void of connection, then they may not be as vulnerable to why numbing. Would you, why would you do that when you can have connection, right? Right. So, yeah, I love that. The screen you see. isn't going to do anything for somebody that's that really wants true connection. Yeah. I mean, they might, it's turned, I mean, they're going to be turned on. That's, you know, hey, that's yeah. titillating. Yeah. But after a while, it's like, that's really empty. That's really empty. That's not yeah. what I want. I really want a connection with this person. That's interesting. Wow. So somebody might, somebody that's in a healthy family, it's not that they may never look at pornography or whatever, mm-hmm. but they're not going to have the hook into it that somebody that's developed in a shame maybe with some trauma in the background or whatever yeah. else because you know they're going to be seeking a true intimate connection. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, um is there anything besides saying like you're a certified sex addiction therapist? Is there any specific credential I should mention? Um I mean, you do counseling broad, more broadly than just that, but um that is kind of rare to be a certified sex addiction. Like you and Brittany are two of the main ones in town. Yeah. I pair that up with the, the, the EMDR certification. Oh, yes, yes, I yes. I don't know. Because the trauma oh, yeah. piece with the addiction, I mean, anytime you're treating addiction, you got to have some kind of trauma background. Oh, yeah, that's cool. You can't, can't uh, in my opinion, you cannot do good trauma. You, you cannot do good um, addiction treatment if you don't have a background in trauma. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. I read that on your bio today, and I took a picture of it. Um, 
but that is just really neat that you have those two like specialties and how complementary and really interconnected they are okay i love the emdr that's fun stuff oh yeah now does it it stands for eye movement desensitization response right reprocessing (laughs) reprocessing yeah but now they're not doing as much eye movement right or tapping some um a lot of people use light bars or they use the the handheld buzzers i'm old-fashioned i still use eye movements so cool because I like, I mean, it's it's actually pretty intimate with uh-huh. with your, you know, counselee because uh-huh. you're sitting close. Uh-huh. I'm sitting <clears throat> knee to knee with them and working, so I'm watching really close, and I'm I'm a part of the process there. It's just a, wow. It's much different than sitting across the room with a with a cord and some buzzers in somebody's hand. So man, all right, I'm trying. I'm gonna try not to be too like dorky and get too overexcited <laughs> the more i hear about it i'm just like this is so cool the emdr is cool uh, i mean the stuff that happens oh man you can't i wish i could write books about some of the transformations that i've seen happen in my office just from the emdr and the things that come out of it it's just you would be it, it's like uh I mean, it's not, it is, but it's, it almost, it borders miraculous. on miraculous, right? Oh, Just man. some of the ways this stuff come together. It's pretty fascinating. I have a, and I'm not doing anything. Yeah. That's the thing. Everybody walks away. He's such a good therapist. I'm like, <laughs> I just kind of facilitated all of this. I really didn't do anything. <laughs> I just did a technique and mm-hmm. it just did that. Wow. That's what's fun about it. Man. Okay. Well, that's, that sounds like really good way to kind of presented as you have really have two very specialized degrees. I mean, your general degree was a master's in counseling. Yeah. Marriage and family. Therapy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I kind of went the systems track. Uh-huh. Okay. Which is good because it was a, all the systems work and the fan, it was, it was more focused on family and the systems and everything. Mm-hmm. So, I had the opportunity to get an LMFT license, but I got I got the LPC here in Tennessee because it was a little more. So you're kind of an LMFT and an LPC. I didn't get the LMFT license. I have yeah, the, I have I the see. I have the education to credential right. for it. But an you LMFT, chose to get the LPC. I chose, I chose LPC because of just the it's more widely known and accepted. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was smart. You're achiever. <laughs> Wanted to get the LPC. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> that was smart. <laughs> That's funny. Well, do you have any questions for me before we start? I don't think. Are we just gonna? We're just gonna sit and. Chat? Yeah, I'll probably sort of officially kind of start introducing it here in a second. So today I am here with a licensed professional counselor who has a background in licensed marriage and family therapy. Um, he has a degree in a master's in marriage and family counseling, and he has two very specialized certificates or um, trainings that are going to be really key today. And I'm really excited to hear about both of them. So he is a certified sex addiction therapist, and he also has an EMDR certification 
which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. And um, so I'll go ahead and say hello to Kirk McDermott. Hello, Beth. It's good to be here tonight. Thank you for being here. I know you've had a long day and you're so kind to add this on to the end of your day. We've been talking for a while and he's already said about 20 things that I'm super excited about and jotting notes down about. So hopefully we can cover um, everything we've already chatted about. And um, so, yes, I wanted to have him here today because he is one of the few certified sex addiction therapists in town in Chattanooga. And I have been referring to him for quite a few years and have heard great feedback from people that I've referred him to. And I have another therapist friend who does similar work and she always highly recommends him. Her name is Brittany Giannunzio. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, good friend. She's great. She's a great therapist. She is great. Um, so I love hearing the way Kirk conceptualizes sex addiction and related to trauma. And so I'm really, really excited to pick his brain about how he views this. So um, where should we start? Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, we can start talking about the relationship between um, addictions and trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of Sounds great. Yeah, I like, I like the way you were talking about it a few minutes ago, just how much, how frequently those who have addictions with sex or pornography have a huge history with trauma. Can you kind of mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, there's almost always an, <clears throat> there's almost always a trauma background when I'm working with somebody um, with with any addiction. Um, and what we find, especially when it comes to sex addiction, there's oftentimes um, some traumas of what we call abandonment. So there's mm. there's two types of traumas that we look at. There's traumas of these are just categorizations, abuse or things that happened to us that shouldn't have happened. Hmm. Uh, and then there's abandonment. Those are things that should have happened but didn't. Ooh, I love that. Right? I call it and sins so, of commission <clears throat> versus sins of omission. Yeah, and so there's most people when we're thinking about trauma, we look at those things that happened to us, and the, most people are looking at the big T kind of stuff, like was a, well, was this person beaten or were they raped? Mm -hmm. You know, which are those are very traumatic things. But there's a lot of other things that get classified as trauma. It may not seem as big, but they happen consistently over time and have a lot of uh, a lot of influence on a person's life. And so, so those those two types of trauma, those things that happen to us that shouldn't, mm -hmm. um, and those things that don't happen that should, um, mm -hmm. those you know, and they happen consistently over time, even if they're seemingly smaller things, can add up to being a pretty good big trauma in a person's background. Yeah, like what's missing in your life is really key. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the trauma of abandonment, I, almost, I have a lot of people come in my office and we start talking about trauma and they're like, well, I don't have any trauma. And they, they're like, I, and they've got so much shame. Well, I've, I've done all these horrible sexual things and I've, I've really looked and I don't, I've never experienced any sexual abuse. What's wrong with me that I would mm. do these things? And we start looking like, yeah, you haven't had anything sexually abusive happen to you, but mm -hmm. let's look at all this abandonment, mm. right? There's so much, there's holes in here that mm. you have, right? There's, you know, we think of usually looking across four different categories when it comes to trauma. There's physical, mm -hmm. so it could be physical abuse or abandonment, mm -hmm. you know, is, is was somebody abusive physically or were they just not even there, mm -hmm. right? 
um, or was there not enough physical touch in the household and that kind of stuff. There's emotional abuse or abandonment. So emotional abuse, those things happen to us that shouldn't being, mm-hmm. you know, being the, the blatant stuff, being screamed at, being shamed, being compared to people, um, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Or the more subtle things where we start having to, we learn how to, in our family dynamics, the subtle, um, the responsibility for other people's emotional well-being mm-hmm. gets passed on to us instead of we instead of children being supported by parents they become they sort of take on ownership for their parents emotions and that sort of thing and kind so, of being parentified yeah being parentified and so they you know you know i've got a if, if mama ain't happy ain't nobody happy mm-hmm. right or we walk on eggshells around dad because make sure you don't piss dad off right mm-hmm. and so it, when that happens, a child begins to take ownership for the parents' emotions, right? I got to make sure mom's okay. So they, they disconnect from themselves to make to take care of a parent. And so now they're no longer kind of present for themselves, right? Wow. And so it ends up being an emotional, emotional trauma that they experience because mm. now they're no longer here for themselves, right? Mm. So there's, so that's, so that's some subtle forms of emotional abuse. And then emotional abandonment is when they just don't get the emotional connection and support and and that sort of thing that that's needed to be able to have a healthy self-esteem upbringing and that kind of stuff you know so were they were there secure connections in the household secure attachments were were they told that they learn that they were worthwhile for who they were as a person not their performance right did they was mm. there an openness to just be themselves and to ask questions and to receive, you know, healthy, good feedback and connection, all those kind of things. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's it. If that, if those are not present, then there's, there's an emotional abandonment, right? They're just kind of on their own. They have to figure it out for themselves or, and that sort of a thing. And, mm-hmm. um, and so it's, there's oftentimes emotional abandonment behind sexual addiction. Ooh, it's yeah. really, it's very common. And a lot of these people who've been through this emotional abandonment kind of minimize their trauma and their pain because they might say, well, I haven't been sexually abused or beaten, so I I feel guilty for, you know, I have no good excuse because I haven't been through that much, but they don't realize the daily deficits. I've worked with a lot of trauma Mm -hmm. and I've heard some of the most horrible stories Mm -hmm. and Almost every person with trauma that I've worked with has has said to me, but at least mine wasn't as bad as this. Right? Yeah. Or it really wasn't that bad, was it? And there's a, always, I always have, hear a minimization of a person's trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when, when they tell me those things, I take it with a grain of salt because, you know, a person's trauma, a perspective on their own trauma is usually pretty skewed. Right. They somehow diminish their own pain and try to imagine those who, in their minds, had worse pain. Mm-hmm. And we can always find someone There's, with worse pain in their, you know, it's yeah, all relative. It's all relative, yeah. But if you really search, you could come up with a horror story that's always worse than Absolutely, yours. but that doesn't mean that what a person went through wasn't traumatic and, didn't, and had an effect, right? And so, right. It's not a comparison thing. It's did I actually get what I needed or or did I get things or did I also have things that happened to me that were really hurtful or harmful? Right. Yeah. And so that's interesting how often, you know, people feel guilty, almost like a survivor's guilt or something. I see that a lot with trauma. 
Yeah. It's really interesting. Like somehow it's, it's weird because I feel like on some level, and I hear that a lot myself. I mean, I hear it very frequently from clients and it's like on some level, I think they know they went through something hard and I'm not sure if psychologically, I mean, this is probably way too much of a tangent, but they in a way want to minimize it by saying it could have been worse and i know yeah. there's way worse i think that's true and a lot of people who have been through trauma also have learned to shut down a lot of emotion and so mm-hmm. they they can't really grasp at least at the level where they're at how deep some of that trauma is at least for people that have been through a lot of trauma they they, they are very shut down and so yeah maybe they're, they're not going to have a good emotional grasp on what they what all they went through mm-hmm but have you seen that validation has really been very healing for a lot of these people to say, wow, that was really, really hard what you went through? Yeah, I think it, I mean, that's the first stage of some mm-hmm. of the, is, is really when they begin to see that there's actually some reasons for their behavior, mm-hmm. that, that, that what they're doing is, is, is makes sense, right? Hey, I can mm-hmm. see why that, why you'd be doing that, right? It's, it's in line with all these things. And, mm-hmm. and so when it, when it makes sense and there's, there's something in the background to kind of see there's, this is why you're doing these things, mm-hmm. it does begin to help bring some of the shame down. Cause most everybody that comes into my office with an addiction is also just just covered up with shame. They feel they feel horrible about themselves. They feel horrible about their actions. Um, I do have a lot of uh, of narcissistic people still that mm-hmm. come in my office mm-hmm. that wouldn't look like they feel bad about themselves. Mm-hmm. But on, underneath all of that, even then, is is a lot of shame. Even a narcissist is covered with shame. Yeah. Whether they, whether whether you see it on the outside or yes. not, it is it's underneath the surface there. Yeah, it's very core. Mm-hmm. So how do you use your trauma work? And, and, you know, if you want to give us a layman's, you know, description or summary of EMDR, that would be amazing. But um, how do you use the trauma work to help those that have sex addiction or porn addiction uh, recover? Well, we usually don't start with trauma work right away, but we kind of wade into some things. So we start Hmm. really, oftentimes we're kind of looking at, we usually start looking at emotions and helping Mm -hmm. this person kind of begin to get in tune with their own emotions. What am I feeling so Mm -hmm. I can understand what's going on inside of me? Because most of of the time a person is pretty disconnected from themselves. which if they're disconnected from themselves, they're not going to be able to connect with somebody else. Right. Mm -hmm. And they usually have spouses that are just really angry because they've been hurt and wanting that person to be empathic, but there's no way this person can be empathic because they can't even, you know, they're really not even connected with themselves. Right. So we're trying to get them, you know, connected with themselves and then to understand their story from Mm -hmm. the background, to understand the trauma from at least a little more of a cognitive perspective. Mm -hmm because there are different parts of the brain, right? And mm-hmm. so they, they're gonna understand it from a cognitive perspective to see, oh, I get why you know all this stuff happened, or I can see this trauma story and how these pieces come together. Mm-hmm. And then we begin to wade into actually doing the trauma work that's gonna be the EMDR. So we'll look at, we usually find some target events, like when's the first time that this, the, uh, the shame message that, that really came out loud and clear that's sort of been pervasive in your life when did it first appear, right? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I was 
four years old and you know um you know dad yelled at me for you know for you know you know exploring some you know myself or somebody else mm -hmm. right maybe we're playing doctor or house or whatever i don't mm -hmm. know whoever. but mm -hmm. whatever the image it, there's all kinds of different things but wherever this began mm -hmm. you know I, I started believing i was bad right and mm. so we we begin to kind of look at that and then then's the one's the time that it really sticks out the worst right when you had that and so we start targeting those we, we target a shame message mm. you know in the emdr and we begin with uh, a the original time that that message popped up and mm -hmm. then we go to we'll look at the worst time and so usually the, those are jumping off points mm -hmm. and then we kind of follow out those tracks in the brain the, the mind goes kind of where it goes it's 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 pretty fascinating mm. um therapy because it's more of a flow of consciousness kind of therapy mm -hmm. so that we're just kind of following out where their mind goes in sort of these memory networks as we're kind of exploring all of this and I'll guide a little bit of stuff here and there, mm -hmm. but as we go through that process, there's there's kind of like a, they begin to kind of get past and, and reorganize some of those um, those memories that had a lot of shame attached to them, and and they just sort of begin to to decrease in their intensity and sort of wow. just instead of become, being right here always, mm -hmm. you know, always present and having a lot of power, they can just sort of get set mm. over on the shelf of life, and oh yeah, it's there, but it just it's that's just a part of that shelf of all those yeah. memories over there again. Is it a little bit like systematic desensitization? Um, I think it ha it, it, it can it can follow out some of that, but mm -hmm. I think it goes a little bit deeper than that mm -hmm. in that it's it's um, it's an experience it's it's actually an internal experience of some mm -hmm. of the same memories. Um, hmm. and and going back through them in a in a more of a conscious state, mm -hmm. or somewhat conscious state, yeah. and you're kind of in that EMDR place. It's conscious, but you almost it's it's I wouldn't say it's a trance, but they're but they're kind of maybe fade away in, in their own yeah they're in their own little world there yeah. for a little while where we're working through those things. Hmm. Um, so you have <laughs> them revisit some of the like the initial first traumatic memories of like shame or mm -hmm. and then you have them find a really more intense intensely traumatic memory and they kind of talk about that well we're really not talking when we're doing okay. EMDR much so what what happens is i'll have them focus on whatever that memory is mm-hmm and so I'll have them just kind of let their mind go where it goes while I do a set of eye movements. So they're watching my, I do it the old, I'm pretty old fashioned. So <laughs> I'm moving my fingers back and forth. Uh -huh. So they're focusing on my fingers and they're having their eyes moving back and forth while they're just letting their mind sort of go where it goes. Uh -huh. And so what's happening is they're taking sort of an inward journey uh, through different memories or maybe looking, they might get a more of a memory more intensely. Um, they might popcorn around to a bunch of mm -hmm. different memories. Sometimes they have might have some body sensations that come mm -hmm. up or they might have a lot of emotion that comes up. Or I've had people just have some un, just totally unrelated hmm. image pop up that they've never, it's not an image they've ever seen before, but it just, it's a, a symbol or an image that pops up in their mm -hmm. brain. So there's, there's a lot of things that can go on when they're in that, in that mm -hmm. space while they're watching my fingers. While they're watching my fingers, what's happening is, is they're, 
the left side of the brain controls the right side of your body mm-hmm. and vice versa. And when you're when you're doing movements that use both sides of that, you're crossing the midline of the brain mm-hmm. and you're bringing both line, both sides of the brain online together. And um, all this is is still theoretical. We don't know exactly how EMDR mm-hmm. works, but the theory is that it actually opens up. You know, we were using that corpus callosum, which is that mm-hmm. that, that part of the brain that connects mm-hmm. all of those. And we're able to begin to get into a little bit deeper into some of these memory networks and within that conscious state it's almost like a it's like a conscious um reproduction of an rem sleep cycle when your mm. brain is actually you know during rem sleep you there's a rapid eye movement your brain is categorizing a lot of things you're working mm-hmm. through a lot of the things that you're dealing with on the day-to-day <clears throat> and some somehow with trauma it's like stuff gets stuck Mm. And so when we go through with EMDR, we're, it's almost like recreating that, but then, and we're working through it in a way where stuff kind of gets unstuck and you can begin to heal past some of those traumas. Wow. Um, and the theory with EMDR, and I, I do, do believe this, is that, you know, our body's made to heal. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a cut and your body heals itself, mm-hmm. right? As long as you keep it clean and you, we don't have something that's getting in the way of the healing process, mm-hmm. your body is, is made to heal itself. Um, just like your mind, um, but with trauma, it's like something's gotten stuck there, and it, mm-hmm. you can get a you can get something that festers, or you get something that's kind of, you know, in there to, that's not allowing that healing process. And when we when we begin to get past that, you know, we begin to open that up where where the healing process then just starts to take place on its own. Wow! So, kind of get the blood flowing and the juices flowing. And yeah, so they, they go back and revisit some of these memories and mm. they get kind of recategorized in a little bit different way. They don't they don't get the, sh- the same shame attached to them. Mm. And so then that shame kind of carries, that, that shame reduction begins to carry forward. And that's sort of the, the whole purpose of the EMDR, um, decre- decreasing the sensitivity to whatever the, mm-hmm. the, the uh, setting event was and also reducing that shame that got attached mm. in there. You know, one thing that's standing out about your philosophy for treating people with sex addiction or porn addiction or whatever version or whatever you want to classify it as is just this importance of getting healthier and dealing with your past and understanding how your behaviors are often caused by, you know, a desire to numb pain, which the pain needs to be looked at. People come in with a lot of behaviors that they feel so much shame about. I'm like, you know what? That's what you've been doing to survive, mm. right? So we need to, we actually need to honor mm-hmm. what you've been doing to survive. Yes. We need to look at what's under that, that you're trying to survive. You know, what's what's going on underneath the survival so we can begin to heal underneath that. And then you don't need these behaviors anymore, right? Wow. So we're not trying to, I don't want to create a vacuum you know, have somebody come in and tell them to stop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you stop doing what you're doing to survive, you're going to find some other way to survive, mm-hmm. right? And if, if we if we just eliminate the behavior, it's performing a function. Yeah. <clears throat> and so we want to understand what is it doing at deeper levels first, and then we begin, we do some healing under that, and there's not the pressure and the, and the need for that anymore. And it may have developed into a habit and a pattern, but that's going to be much easier to begin to get under control when we don't have um, what's going on. I kind of, I use the analogy with my clients that we've got the the gas pedal and a brake, right? Mm -hmm. 
And most people, when it comes to addiction, are trying to use the break. You know, you go to 12-step groups and whatever else, and that's great. You want to be able to put it on the break, but if we don't take our foot off the gas, we're going to burn something up. So mm. in my therapy office, 12-step groups and whatever else, we're, help, we're sending them to groups and different things to help them put the foot on the brake. What I try to do in my office is help them take the foot off the gas. Yeah. Oh, I love that because it's kind of like don't judge the behavior or don't judge yourself or condemn yourself. Just understand why it's there mm -hmm. and what purpose it's serving. And I just love that assumption beneath what you just said is we're thankful that you're here. And I think that that whole philosophy has actually come alive for me more lately because I feel like suicide is such a huge, huge reality right now. Like I've never seen it before. And I have found myself thinking with clients that I have, like you, you can do anything. You can run away. And I've even, you know, as much as I'm like anti any unhealthy thing, like drugs or anything, I'm like, go start using drugs. I don't care, you know? And, and I'm kind of comically saying that cause I don't want anyone to really start doing yeah. anything damaging, yeah. but I'll take anything over them killing themselves, like do something extreme, run away, disappear. Just don't kill yourself, yeah. you know? Um, so I love that you're telling these people, which convey so much love and many of them probably hate themselves and feel so much shame and oh, they've been shamed as well. Yeah. Right? They've they been shame themselves. shamed. I mean, they're, they're usually their worst shamer, but they've also been shamed by people around them or mm -hmm. sometimes even religious institutions. Right. And right. Kind of things. And so we, we have to, we've got to undo a lot of that shame because shame is a driving force behind addiction right so yeah shame is not a motivator for change shame is a motivator for for unhealth and destruction yeah and we all have so many unhealthy coping mechanisms and i don't know how sex or porn addiction would line up with the shame you know hierarchy but i would imagine it's pretty high up there I would say, I mean, our sexuality is core to our being, and so mm -hmm. when when we've got when we've got brokenness there, it's, there's usually a pretty high degree of shame. So I, I mean, I don't you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's only anecdotal, but I yeah. would say it's a, it's a pretty high degree of shame. Yeah. But anybody with trauma, all of my trauma clients are, you know, are covered up with shame because mm -hmm. you know, oftentimes mm -hmm. they. I mean, there's the stuff that's even happened to them. They didn't do these things, mm -hmm. but they feel such shame about, you know, that story. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's just common. Well, it's, I mean, it's the, it's the result of fall and we're touched by it. And when, you know, and when, mm -hmm. and when brokenness happens in lives, it's going to increase shame. And so the more, the more wounding we have, the more shame mm -hmm. we're going to feel. Yeah. Well, and to me, your philosophy and mentality sounds like it's more about what's healthy for you, which is the way I like to approach addiction is out of concern for them, not judgment, mm -hmm. but I'm worried that this isn't healthy or that you're numbing pain that needs to be resolved. And that message can really open people up to being more vulnerable when they don't feel judged and they feel understood or seen or they feel that compassion and that grace, which I think we should all have because we all have issues. We all have addictions, you know, yeah. um, it, it might just give them more compassion for themselves and then they can actually look and you open their eyes to, you know, you went through a lot more than you realized you went through. 
and even subtle daily um, deficits in your childhood can cause a disconnection. Mm -hmm. You were saying, I think before we started recording, the opposite of addiction is intimacy. Intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the addicts you see had a lack of intimacy in their childhood as far as like secure attachments. Yes, usually somewhere back there. And and they may have I mean, I have people even come in when I grew up in a good home and you know, and they and they probably did. And we're not we're not here to judge the home and yeah. say we had bad parents or it was a bad family or it was a dysfunctional family. But mm-hmm. but if there were deficits that led to, you know, some things that that, that created um you know, this addiction pattern, the deficits mm-hmm. that created a pattern, that a need for um, a false sense of intimacy or, or a medication, then we still need to look at, into that and understand what was going on back there. So we're not we're not going in on a witch hunt and a, and a moral judgment mm-hmm. about a family, but we do want to understand, you know, that families have good stuff and bad stuff. Yeah. And, and if I had some things that were in my family that were not so helpful, you know, it doesn't mean my family's bad, but I would like to change some of those habits, right? I want to change yeah. some of those patterns. Um, and if some oh, yeah. of those unhelpful things led to some of the behaviors that I have, then, you know, it, it's a good way to be able to understand and make mm-hmm. some changes and do something different. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's more a matter of not if a family has, if deficits or issues, it's oh, which we all ones. have the merch yeah. ones. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which things were your family good at and which things were your family not so good at? And just identifying those and understanding how it affects you is like pivotal. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about like even, you know, young children or what you were saying earlier about like the, the natural piece of how it feels good and it's soothing to to touch certain areas in your body and, and what you were saying about even a baby in the womb. That was fascinating to me. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of shame around masturbation or those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm pretty, I guess, I mean, I work in this field, so I guess I may be a lot of times somewhat desensitized to it, but <laughs> I just don't have, I don't have a big moral view on it. It's just a part of life. Right. Right. And uh, it's it's one of the earliest self-soothing um, techniques that anybody can can have we have there are ultrasound pictures of of um you know male babies in the womb holding an erect penis you know <laughs> as a as a self-soothing mechanism right so uh, they, they're not even born yet right and they're and they're yeah uh, and they're you know using that as a self-soothing so it's mm-hmm. it's not a it's not a shameful thing although i mean it's a person had a family and a, whatever has to has to have their ba- values and their boundaries around some of those things mm-hmm. now it can if it, if there are deficits that have taken place in a person's life you know it can become you know an addictive kind of self-soothing you know mm-hmm. pair that up with you know pornography or some kind of acting out or those kind of things uh, and at that case that we got to look at what's going on underneath that right mm-hmm. so there's it's not about the 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 masturbation, the soothing itself is mm-hmm. not the problem necessarily as it is what's going on underneath that, mm-hmm. that that has made it to where it has to be compulsive, right? Right. Yeah. And that's actually an interesting parallel. We were talking earlier about like the link between food and I heard a podcast about alcohol compared to sex addiction and you know, it's natural, obviously, to eat, <laughs> but and it, you know, and it's not necessarily bad to drink. But if you're drinking to excess, it's an it, it's unhealthy. 
Um, so when you look at that natural, it's gonna taste good to eat certain foods. It's gonna be, it, it's fine to drink a little bit of alcohol, but to take things to excess to an unhealthy degree is not in your best interest. Yeah, and are there things that I am running from or trying not to feel when I'm doing this? Yes. Right? Am, am I am I really in tune with myself and I, am I feeling, am I aware, am I actually taking care of myself, am I meeting my needs? Or am I using this to to numb out, to to try to get away from something for relief or release, right? Exactly. So if I'm using it for those two things, then I need to understand what am I looking for relief from right. or a release of, right? So we need to look under that then and see what's happening there. Yeah, self-medication. Yeah. If it's serving a psychological purpose, and, and it is very similar to, are you drinking this wine because the... The server says that this wine is really good with this pasta. Are you? <laughs> it's very delicious. <laughs> <laughs> or are you drinking wine, this wine, because you're trying to numb the stress of work that day? And it doesn't make you a bad person, obviously. I mean, no, I think we've all probably had a glass of wine to numb the stress a little yeah. bit, right? But do I come back to? Am I? Am I just consistently mm -hmm. just numbing it out because I'm not dealing with it? Or right. Do I? Okay, I'm having a glass of wine, I'm going to chill out, and then I'm going to kind of unpack my day. You know, do I come back to that stuff and do it's am I kind dealing of a crutch with life, instead right? of just like yeah. a natural, yeah. Um, so you said that the shame of a sex addiction or a porn addiction is like huge. Like there's typically a, a lot of shame around that. I do. I see a lot of shame with my with my clients. And, and we live in a you know, here at Chattanooga, we're we're right in the center of the Bible Belt, and so mm -hmm. I think, I think that can add to it. Although I've seen clients that that come from a you know a very, you know, a, a total non-religious background and still mm -hmm. feel a lot of shame with it. But I think there can be an added amount of shame when you have, when you have a culture, but um, we're a purity culture or a you know, religious culture that has mm -hmm. some of these ideas around sex and sexuality and that kind of stuff, and mm -hmm. so. Um, it can be pretty pervasive for people you know, that, with mm -hmm. a sexual addiction to try to um, cover that up or to feel like they're very different from other people or something's wrong with them. Or that yeah. Kind of yeah. Just being realistic and, you know, being honest. I mean, it's it's very understandable. I have had many clients over the years, whether it be, you know, a female or a male, um, I can remember a female saying that as a child, she, when she would get anxious, she learned to masturbate and she was very young. So she didn't have any value labels around it. She just noticed that it calmed it her good. down. Yeah. And we were joking around earlier about the Seinfeld episode <laughs> <laughs> right. um, where if, for those of you that like Seinfeld, you might remember there was an episode where, and you might remember better who started it, but either Jerry or Kramer or George or Elaine or somebody said, let's see who can go the longest without masturbating before bedtime or something, or maybe just <laughs> masturbating. And, and the thing that I remember was so hilarious was it showed them all tossing and turning and having insomnia. <laughs> right. it was, and, no, and nobody wanted to fess up. <laughs> <laughs> like I couldn't hack it. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the biology of you know, what either masturbation or orgasms do to, you know, like you mentioned dopamine earlier, 
Um, can you explain why it's so soothing or a little bit about the biology of it? Ooh. Um, well, there definitely, you get a couple of different chemicals that are going on, at least with, with some of the, well, um, with the masturbation, you're going to have definitely the buildup of dopamine that's happening there, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then when you have that buildup of dopamine and that release, then you, you, you definitely have a, you know, there, you, there's a soothing there's a release of a lot of body tension that happens at that point. There's okay. a lot of muscle tension and things that get released there. Mm -hmm. There's when it comes to the addictions, um, you know, there's the, the problem with the dopamine is that, or with addictions is that we can get kind of addicted to the dopamine cycle, mm -hmm. right? Getting addicted to the dopamine. Um, because when, when you, if you're, if there's masturbation or there's pornography and there's a lack of connection there, there's you get mm -hmm. this big buildup of dopamine, um, you get this big spike, and then there's a release, and you usually come back down and kind of there's a dopamine sort of withdrawal that mm. happens after that, unfortunately, unless there is uh, unless it's there's a connected, like if there's a, a sexual relationship with somebody that you're connected with, mm -hmm. and you and you pair the oxytocin in there, mm -hmm. oxytocin is the body's um, a bonding chemical so mm -hmm. we it's the chemical that's present to feel really connected mm -hmm. you, you have a lot of dopamine release when you're petting your dog or women when they're carrying a, a an in, you know a child you know, mm -hmm. you know there's their body is being flooded with dopamine i mean excuse me with oxytocin mm -hmm. because they are you know they're bonding with that mm -hmm. with that child and you know internally so when when there is the oxytocin present that is with that buildup of the dopamine, you get you get this the buildup of those two together. Mm -hmm. You get you get the dopamine spike, especially after orgasm. But then what the what the oxytocin does is it lets the the dopamine kind of begins to sort of fade back off hmm. and kind of come back to a normal, just sort of at a at a at a much more gradual pace rather than a than a big dip downward spike yeah which is which is interesting so then why why connected relational sex mm -hmm. is not addictive when there is actually the the connection piece there hmm. um because you've got because you've got that oxytocin less... that's built up so if wow. a person has built up that oxytocin with when they feel really connected with the person that they're actually being sexual with there's not going to be the addictive pattern mm -hmm. now that's not to say that people can't have addictive sex in relationships mm -hmm. But usually it's, you know, in those kind of situations, they haven't built up that oxytocin. So mm. they're, they're using, it's, it's a using of a person to get, to get that dopamine spike rather than feeling close and connected. Mm -hmm. When we feel close and connected and we get that dopamine spike, you don't have the dopamine withdrawal afterwards mm -hmm. that actually then sets the cycle up again, right? Oh, I, I, you know, you feel really good for a little bit, you get the spike, then you get the withdrawal and then you want to want more. Right, because uh, you, I want to get back to where I was feeling. And yeah, so that's where, that's where um, the the chemist, the body chemistry with just the dopamine can mm -hmm. can lend toward uh, an addictive pattern. And when we when we pair up the connection with it, uh, connected relational sex is not addictive. Hmm. Well, as I told you before we started recording, it's was hard for me to choose a direction because I was so excited to pick your brain about this whole topic related. I thought about, 
you know, young teens and young adolescents and how to prevent addiction issues, but to normalize these are natural urges and how do you kind of navigate that? And then of course, having many clients as well as friends, I mean, who have been traumatized by either a husband who, you know, cheats or has a sex addiction or has pornography addiction. And it's been really interesting to me over the years to see different reactions from, you know, it's generally women, but sometimes, you know, women can be the ones with sex addictions or oh, porn yeah. addictions. Oh, yeah. And I've heard, you know, I don't know what statistics you've heard. I mean, sometimes I hear like a fourth can be women, but I don't know. There's a high number. And, and unfortunately, women with a sexual addiction um, are usually even more covered up with shame because there's just so much more shame for women. Because it feels less likely or less expected. Yeah, it's less, it's less likely, it's less expected. You know, there's not the boys will be boys kind of yeah. mentality behind mm -hmm. that, right? Women are supposed to be, you know, yeah. chaste and non-sexual. Yeah. And more relational and all those kind of things. Yeah. And so if they if they have developed an you know addiction either to pornography or some other kind of sexual addiction, it's there's there's even a oftentimes a deeper stigma with that. I mean, both men and women live with the stigma, but I think for women it, they there's even a, a greater stigma when it right. comes to a sexual addiction. It's a bit less expected, so there's more yeah. Um well, so, and you did mention in passing earlier before we recorded about the book, No Stones. Mm -hmm. How do you pronounce Marnie? Marnie Faree. Faree. Yeah. I actually read that book about 15, 16 years ago. thought it was amazing. Love the philosophy of that book. And it was called No Stones, Women Redeemed from Sexual Shame. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, and you worked with her. Uh, yeah, that's Marnie. That's her. Marnie's story. Um, uh -huh. Marnie's the director of Bethesda Workshops in Nashville. Founder, one of the founders and the and director of Bethesda Workshops in Nashville, mm. which is a um, it's a Christian um, based and yet it's a um, um, very clinical um, mm -hmm. outpatient um, treatment kind mm. of a workshop in a workshop setting for men and women that struggle with sexual addiction. Mm -hmm. They have a they have a addiction workshop. They have a partners in workshop for, for spouses. Mm -hmm. And then if you've completed both of those, you can actually, the couple can go back through a couple's workshop and all of those are, they're dynamic workshops. Mm. I worked up there for 12 years and I love, I mean, the people, the staff is phenomenal. The treatment is top notch. You can't get better treatment than even out of a 90 day treatment center. They, everything's kind of what they've done in Bethesda is you, you get pretty much what you get out of a 90 day treatment and mm -hmm. compacted into a weekend. So there's not the time to unpack it all. I mean, it's, it's really intense, but you get the same amount of, of stuff in that as what you get in a, in a, in a lot of in wow. tr treatment. So it really catapult can catapult people down the yeah. road when it comes to, uh, um, you know, their addiction treatment and getting, getting their marriages back on track, especially it's uh. a really great, great tool. If people are struggling with the, with an addiction to get into those, some of those workshops and you can really jumpstart for men uh, or women, men or women and couples. So Bethesda, yeah, yeah Bethesda. Yeah. If people are interested, that's Bethesdaworkshops.org. I'm, I wasn't here to make a plug for Bethesda, no. but, but oh, that's for great. Sure they're, they're, I love it's, that it's book. Top notch um, treatment there. And just so close good. here in that, you know, just up the road in Nashville. Yeah. Well, one surprise when, you know, the, the person who's been, you know, felt cheated on or betrayed is a woman 
is some of them will, you know, kind of mildly say, well, my husband looks at porn and, you know, I'd love to hear your statistics. I mean, and, and we all know it's not the same as it was 50 years ago or 40 or 30, even when Mm -hmm. you had to go buy, you know, penthouse or playboy to get pornography in your house. Now it's just right there. In fact, when I was preparing for this podcast, I was looking up like teenage boys and masturbation. And the first thing that popped up was basically a porn site. I'm sure that you you don't look surprised at all. Um, And I was like, oh my goodness, like I'm trying to read some facts Mm -hmm. on this and I'm not looking for that. But the point is, I think that we are all victims right now. And I, I want people, not that, you know, people don't have to have a sense of responsibility and accountability, but, you know, these young kids and even just people in general of any age are victims to, you know, people want to make money. Yes, yes. it's really disturbing. But um, going back to the women who find that they're, I've seen a huge range of responses to, okay, my husband's looking at pornography or doing, you know, soliciting sex online and things like that. Um, Some of those with, you know, the pornography thing are just saying, well, I've heard that 90% of men look at porn and they're like, hey, that's fine with me. We look at it together, you know? And then there are other women that are just completely distraught, like, I never in a million years thought my husband would do this and I'm just completely devastated. And who is this person, you know? And um, so I guess that's one question I would like to pose to you. And and one of the common, you know, threads with that is, am I not pretty enough? Yeah, what's under that, unfortunately, and there'll probably be a lot of partners that would want to probably reach through here and get a hold of me and strangle me, but. <laughs> That's their own trauma speaking, right? So it's it's. I mean, we you get you get couples that come together and they're married for a reason. And oftentimes, if somebody's an addict, there's usually you know there's there's it's not that she's responsible at all for his addiction whatsoever, but she usually has her own background traumas, right? And there's probably that's not the probably the first time where she believed something's wrong with me or mm. I'm not enough or whatever like else. Like low right? self-esteem was yeah, already factoring. So his stuff is actually tapping into some deeper wounds that that trace way back already. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we when we're working with, when I'm working with partners, we have to, unfortunately working with partners is is really tough because we're working on two levels. We got to work with the, with the trauma of the betrayal, right? That mm-hmm. she's finding out or he, so it's not always she, he may mm-hmm. be finding out about these these sexual betrayals and those kind of things. So there's, that is a, is a really significant Mm -hmm. trauma that we're working through and having to get past just the beginning point Mm -hmm. of that, but then start to work back into what it's tapping back into in their past. Right. And, and there's a reason why it's, it's, you know, it's painful anyway. I'm not saying it's not painful, but, but when it's tapping, when it's tapping into an already a past trauma and a wound, it's going to be mm-hmm. bigger than what it it's going to mm-hmm. be bigger than what it actually is. Yeah, well, you know, this is interesting and kind of cool that I'm a woman and you're a man because you know, there you don't want to say that all women are the same and all men are the same, but I do think that and you please correct me if I'm wrong because this is your specialty and not mine, but 
you know, men tend to be more visually stimulated. Mm -hmm. Women are more stimulated by touch and connection. connection. So, but women, I think, tend to think it must be like, oh, that woman on the, the pornographic video is more attractive than me. And I mean, it does seem, I can understand it logically, clinically, I'm like, listen, they're just, it's, it's almost like if your husband was, if you and your husband were having trouble fertility and the nurse was like, we need you to ejaculate into this thing, we're gonna give you something to help that happen quickly. You know, and, and I try to like explain it to women, like this is a stimuli that's not personal. It's, there's no connection. It's just something to achieve an end. Yeah. They're not comparing you to this woman. Well, and a partner has a hard time believing that it's not a comparison. Mm -hmm. And it's, I've never, in, in all my 20 years of doing this, I've never heard somebody saying that it was a comparison. I right. do this because I'm not attracted right. to my spouse. And right. I, I hear over and over, I'm so attracted to my spouse. And even the person maybe that I was having an affair with is not anywhere near as hot as my spouse. But <laughs> I've still been, because it's, a, it's not about that. It's about the medication that they're getting behind that it's about right. something it's about something it's not even about sex if we yeah. if we peel it back sex addiction has actually nothing to do with sex sex is just the the avenue that it takes you know that a person is taking to get their hit yeah um, it's actually about something much deeper and when we can get below the sex and the acts and whatever fetish i mean we can get into all kinds of stuff i have people come in my office that talk about all kinds of stuff and there's so much shame about i'm attracted to this or i get off to that or whatever mm -hmm. else and every single thing that they're attracted to or that that really pulls them in is attached back there to something mm. either some kind of arousal template or a wound that they've experienced and there's mm. a reason why they're drawn to this fetish or this sexual act or mm -hmm. whatever else right so even when it comes to i got off a little bit off topic there, mm -hmm. right but but if he's acting out it's it has nothing to do with an attraction or yeah. a connection with her it's about he's he's medicating something yeah and yet of course it's going to feel personal to her because it is it's a sexual betrayal mm -hmm. um, and so it's 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 one of the it's a both and thing i'm always talking to mm -hmm. people about yeah it's it has nothing to do with you as a spouse and yet mm -hmm. yes it it is very deeply personal yeah i like that both and like how you're feeling is very valid in the sense that it's it's a betrayal of you and your trust and it's very very painful it's not meant to be i mean i i just told someone recently i said you know this thing this person this female that they're potentially you know masturbating to is could be a blow-up doll they wouldn't care it could be a robot it's an idea yeah it's a fantasy and if i mean that's what that's what sexual addiction is about is a fantasy and a fantasy if you think about in, in any in anything in life not just about sex a fantasy is our way of righting a wrong fixing a wound making mm. things the way it's supposed to be right mm, like wishful I mean, thinking even fantasy literature fantasy you know mm -hmm. the genre in, in movies or whatever mm -hmm. else people are drawn to that because there's something in it is oh it's the way that it's supposed to be right mm -hmm. it's, it's, and it's so it's fixing this underlying wrong mm. and that's what a sexual addiction is doing too there's a fantasy involved in whatever he's watching or whatever she's watching mm -hmm. and the fantasy is telling them something mm -hmm. right i'm i'm enough or i'm desirable or i'm the man or i'm 
whatever that doesn't whatever the fantasy message is and maybe there's some sort of really deviant act attached to it which is probably attached to some kind of wound that they've got in their background it's not a personal thing there's reasons for all of the you know there's specific reasons we can trace out why is he attracted yeah. to this and it why makes is so it much this? sense because we can trace it back to whatever's back here and it's mm -hmm. not a personal thing it's, wow. it's a medication yeah i mean it's really the the you know the wide um trying to think the right way to put it i mean this just affects so many people and you know and this is probably too broad for the scope of our conversation tonight i know we probably need to wrap up but you know maybe another time we can talk about this but there is an issue. I mean, I would like to say that I think 90% of married couples or people in serious relationships have dissatisfaction with their sexual relationship. And I, someone, you know, quoted that maybe 75% of the time the male sex drive is higher, maybe 25% of the time the females is higher than males. And, you know, of course, we also have same sex relationships, which, you know, I don't, I haven't heard statistics on that so much, but um, have you heard similar statistics about? Yeah, I don't know what statistics are um, yeah. with that. So all of my stuff is a little bit anecdotal from just experiences. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, sometimes, I mean, I've, and I ha you have to understand I'm coming from a clinical background. So the people that I work with are coming into my office and they have issues, right? So mm -hmm. they're, they're coming in with some kind of right. problem. So I'm not working with the with the population right. that, that everything's the full with, working yeah. well, right? But um, every, almost everybody in my office, there's some degree of, of differences in, in desire yeah. and those kind of things. But yeah. people, it, people learn how to make that work. Um, yeah. And there's always a deficit in relationships. Uh -huh. My relationship is never going to give me everything mm. I want, right? Mm -hmm. We call it the, uh, it's it's anecdotal again, right? It's This is not statistics. We call it the 80-20 <laughs> rule, right? Ah. I may have, I get 80% of the things that I'm really looking for in my relationship, and there's going to be 20% stuff that either drives me crazy or I wish it were different or whatever else, right? And so I need to really learn how to be happy and be appreciative of what I've got because if I go looking for that 20% that I don't have uh -huh. somewhere else, I may get that 20%, but I may be losing out on the 80% that I actually, wow. that's really good. That's crazy. So. I use 80% all the time. So what? where did the 80-20 rule come from? I have no idea. It's, I don't, it, it probably, it, it, it's just a, a saying, I guess, right? So <laughs> There must be something about it because I love the number 80. I'm like, if you're 80% happy with the partner or 80% happy with the school, that's pretty darn good. I would say good. you're doing pretty good. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, you better, you better count your blessings and learn how to be really happy. And, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's like 100% in this world that we're living in. Yeah. So, I mean, there's always an issue in relationships. And so we're always going to, just going to mm -hmm. be something that we wish were a little bit different. But that's why we begin to learn how to appreciate those those really great things that we've got. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes you grieve a loss. So, you know, I wish it were this way. And, and you know, there might be a little bit right. of grief involved. But, you know, to to look for the, something different somewhere else, you, you're going to be missing on all of the stuff that you've got there. It's not, exactly. It's not rarely worth it yeah i can't remember if it was john gottman or who it was but there was some marriage 
expert that says, if you get divorced and remarried, you're probably going to trade in one set of problems for a new one. Oh, you will, right? Yeah. And especially if you, I don't know what the statistics are now, but when I was in my training, um, first marriages were the divorce rate was 50%. Uh Second marriage is 75. Third went to 90. Yep. The idea for most people is I married the wrong person. Uh huh. And, and if somebody lets go of a marriage because they married the wrong person and uh-huh. they've not really taken a look at what did I bring into this and what are my dynamics and make a change there, mm-hmm. they're most likely going to go out and do the same thing again. Because yeah. if you're looking for a change and you're just trying to change the person that you're with and not change you, you're, you're going to be in trouble. Oh, yeah. You take yourself with you and you're going to repeat the pattern. That's true. And sometimes when I'm working with couples that are near the brink of divorce, I say, you know, we could do some either pre-divorce counseling or marriage counseling. And if you, if it's, if you, one partner may view it as pre-divorce counseling because they want out and the other partner might be viewing it as marriage therapy. Um, but either way, if you all get healthier and learn a lot about yourselves, then if you work it out, wonderful, and you're healthier. If you don't, you're also healthier. You're still healthier. You're taking yes. a better self with you, right? Yes, You can exactly. never go wrong investing in yourself. Yes, exactly. Um, well, this is great, and it's such a broad topic. I mean, there are probably a hundred more angles we could go at, but are there any other burning topics or points you would like to make? Well, you asked me earlier, um, I think before we before you started recording, we were talking mm-hmm. about you wanted to know were there things that a family could do to be able to, to protect their kids. Yes. Right? And what's important in that is that families develop healthy dynamics mm-hmm. because it's and when a family has is able to talk about things openly, mm-hmm. uh, when they're able to allow emotions to be free when people get to be who they are and when there are healthy boundaries, meaning mm-hmm. I'm, I'm responsible for me, I'm not responsible for other people's emotions, and we learn how to have really healthy boundaries. We don't have to be perfect, and parents mm. don't have to be perfect. Um, it, you just need to be healthy, and you and you can prevent addictions in your, in your family system. Um, in fact, I mean, a perfect parents would probably do damage, at, you know, if they're trying to perfect yeah parent perfectly in an imperfect world is not going to work right so imperfect parenting is fine Uh as long as we're able to have openness and and we're able to talk we're able to feel we're able to be ourselves and we know repair we can repair when there's yeah there's been when there's been mistakes mistakes or or, or damage that's been done and that that creates health that's so good well i'm totally putting on the spot to ask you this but like if you were going to sit down with you know your own 13, 14 year old boy or 15 year old boy, whatever age you think, and try to say, and we've done this, we have a 15 year old. And of course we get like, oh, why are you doing this? Okay, I'll sit here and just like no response. And all right, are you done? I'm leaving, you know? (laughs) But like, you know, one way of preventing is just to have healthy discussions about, you know, there are natural things that are very normal to want to do but you know just be careful because there's healthy ways just like it's natural to enjoy unhealthy food you know Mm. um but if you could i guess advise parents on how to sit down and talk to one of these prepubescent boys or whatever age how would you talk about it 
Well, there's a couple things I would recommend. One is that you start earlier than than then. Okay. Right? Because healthy sex education doesn't start with the talk. It starts way early. Okay. Um, you know, where we start having open discussions and we set the stage to have open discussions. Like eight or nine right? years old? No, at birth. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> where we start talking. I mean, uh, you know, at early ages where we start even educating the kids or, you know, in a family where we start talking, these are your eyes, this is your nose, mm -hmm. and this is your wee wee. We already start. <laughs> We start using we, we we use different voice and tone and language to to talk about body parts. We already start we start adding shame to yeah. the subject right there, right? We get all shy. Yeah, so oh, we can't talk about that. We already send the message that oh uh -huh. that's different. We can't talk about oh that's uncomfortable and uh -huh. you know. So when we start early and just there's an openness, uh -huh. and then you can begin to just have open frank discussions just in with your kids along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, it sets the stage. It doesn't mean that it's going to be an, a, an easy conversation when they're older, mm -hmm. but I mean, teenagers aren't, they don't talk about a lot of stuff, right? Yeah. But if they, if there's already been a, a pattern of openness and open discussions, it's going to be much less awkward. Uh -huh. The second thing is I would say with, with, if you're, if you're having a conversation with your teenage boy, don't sit down and have a talk with them. Go <laughs> take him out to the forest and go on a backpacking trip and talk along the way, right? Guys don't, it's going to be so much more awkward for a kid if you're sitting sit down, down face sit, to let's face. sit down and have a talk that already right. i mean if some if my wife says that to me i'm already on edge right I, you know it's, and i'm <laughs> so like, your blood don't, pressure don't do that up. to these kids right <laughs> just make it organic and, and talk uh -huh. along the way and 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 especially men men tend to be more open and talk when they're doing something uh -huh. together, shoulder right? to so, shoulder so go shoulder to, to shoulder face. right yeah. and and do and have some of these talks and and i would also say that you know, as a father, especially, share your experience and share your story, especially mm. if you've got one. Mm. Share your story with your son. Don't make him feel like he's different and yeah. because you're ashamed to, to tell him that you've struggled with something, right? Yeah. Or even that you do struggle with it and that you're, you know, that it's something mm -hmm. that you wish you'd gotten a handle on earlier. Mm -hmm. If you can be open and honest and be, and, and be able to let him in and be able to make that connection, you're arming him already with more than what than what you're going to if you're just telling him what to do or what not to do because you're building a relationship with them. And so, That's amazing. So those are things that I would suggest. That humility and authenticity, I hear that a lot from, you know, either parents or teenagers saying, well, I'm going to tell my child like, oh, don't have sex until you're married or don't have sex until you're in your 20s. I'm not going to tell her that I started at 15 or whatever. You know, they are afraid to share vulnerably about their own mistakes and they think it's going to make their child more likely to it mess up. It usually does the exact opposite. I agree. Mm -hmm. Could not agree more. Mm -hmm. I wonder why people tend to think that like it's permission or a license to do the same thing that they did. I possibly my my theory is that there's shame and and then when there's shame and they're going to keep their kids out of it shame mm -hmm. per, shame you know begins mm -hmm. to create more shame right so mm -hmm. if a parent can get over his or her shame and just be able to be healthy and happy with themselves with their and, you know i can talk about my mistakes and the things that i've regrets and whatever else and share those 
then it's it's going to be a much more open experience mm-hmm. of the child, even if the child makes the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. There's an open place for them to come and talk about it, mm-hmm. which is probably better than what their parents had, right? Yes, so you're modeling that. It's at least that. better than, 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 than yeah. what you might have gotten yourself. That's neat. Yeah, I, I have a handout I give a lot of clients called the Personal Bill of Rights. And in it, it says a, a lot of things. I think there are 26 op- items on the list, but it's like I have the right to make mistakes and not be perfect. Absolutely. And yeah, I have I a like right that. to say no and, and all that kind of stuff is, yeah, be uniquely yourself and, and say no if you're not ready for something and you're it's not safe. And um, well, speaking of kids, I just saw, <laughs> you saw my kids on their way out of a little bit ago and I just saw them pull up, but so they're probably gonna make a little noise here in a second and that's okay. But, um, <laughs> And you're probably so busy, you haven't had a chance to even listen to any of my podcast episodes, but you probably know that my podcast is called Never Perfect. And I feel like your philosophy on this and just on life is so compatible with this idea that life's never gonna be perfect. None of us have perfect stories and perfect lives. I grew up trying to be perfect and I'm done with that. <laughs> you got burned out at what, age 18 or 20? Oh no, I made it a lot longer than that. So I, <laughs> somewhere in my 30s it burned out. So yeah, no, I don't, that's that's a, that's a recipe for disaster trying to be perfect. Anything quick you can say about what, what um, transformed you from feeling like you had to be perfect to not? Wow, that's not gonna be a nutshell. Um, <laughs> healthy people who are open and shared their stories with me i think probably is one of the biggest things people right? that Having, modeled yeah that. people that were had dealt with their own shame and could share themselves with me to be able to help me work past my own wow yeah i would say that's probably one of the biggest pieces so that speaks to the gift of sharing your story sharing with your people story, absolutely. and being vulnerable stories are powerful oh my goodness yes well, I am so thankful that you've been doing this work for as long as you have, and I love your philosophy on it. And thank you so much for sharing because this is something I really don't know a lot about, but I've seen a lot of people on the other end of trauma and betrayal and marital issues or even teenagers just you know, dealing with this stuff. And it's very painful to watch. So I really appreciate you shedding some light on the topic. Thanks, Beth. Appreciate you having me tonight. Thank you so much. Loved it.